As with many other families, I'm sure, around this country, the Booker family has a nativity scene set up in our house around Christmas time. We just took it down last week. But over the course of about the month that this scene was set up, our children developed this peculiar habit, especially Savannah, who's almost three, where they would want to go, and they had a fascination with baby Jesus. They'd want to go find baby Jesus and then, so Savannah would go grab baby Jesus, and she'd just carry baby Jesus wherever she went into the house. Like, if she was going to bed, she'd set him right there in the crib with him, or ask if she could. Or if she was sitting on the couch reading a store, she'd sit him right next to her. And it was just this really cute thing um, to watch her and Chloe sometimes do this. My fear is that sometimes that's the way that we treat Jesus in our own lives. And obviously, the gospel, the gospel writers present to us a different Jesus, a different Jesus altogether. Not a Jesus that can be kind of carried around and cuddled and whatever, but a Jesus who, who stands above everyone else in the world and who commands a response. We, we read of this kind of um, different kind of Jesus in Luke 2 when Simeon is, is speaking to Jesus' parents and he says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There's something special about this baby that, that perhaps the nativity scenes around Christmas time lead us to forget. But certainly as we come today, we're celebrating Epiphany, the Feast of Epiphany, which took place a few days ago on January 6th. Certainly when we come to Epiphany, we see a, a, a Jesus that's, that's exploding in significance and much grander and bigger than the one that we sometimes cuddle up to at Christmas time. Uh, a theologian wrote these words, carols stir us, holy words inspire us, the golden glow from the manger warms us. A, a little religion at Christmas is fine, but that glow in the manger comes from the light of the world. It exposes evil and either redeems it or destroys it. The babe in the manger is far more than an object for sentimental size. He is the son of God who must be accepted as ruler or confronted as rival accepted as ruler or confronted as rival. In this Epiphany story, Epiphany, the Feast of Epiphany celebrates the first manifestation or appearing of Christ to the Gentile world, those who are outside the, the, the nation uh, of the Jews, of Israel. And this first appearing is the story that we've read out of Matthew's Gospel. When these wise men, these magi, we don't know if there were three and we don't know if they were kings, so tradition gives us a lot of uh, a lot of filler here that we're not sure is really right. But these wise men come from the east to, to meet Jesus. And we see in this story these two responses that were just mentioned of accepting as ruler or confronting as rival. This story has all kinds of themes in it, uh, especially the theme of worldwide mission, which is a fulfillment of the Old Testament and a sign of the faithfulness of God to his promises and to his people. This is what we read about in Isaiah 6, that nations would come when God finally did his great redemptive work. Nations would flood in to his city to worship his king. We read about this in Psalm 72 as well. Again, all the kings of the earth will come and bring their gifts and bow down before the true king. And these are the kinds of themes that are foreshadowed in this story of these wise men coming from the east and worshiping this baby, this, this, this king, this king that was born. But I don't want to focus on all of those themes. I want to focus tonight especially on the themes of response. How are we to respond to this 
king born in Bethlehem? How would he respond to this king? The first option that we see, and there's two contrasting responses in this text, is the response of Herod the king, who represents really in many ways the insiders. So this is what it was like for him. Kind of here's the buzz going around in Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't just three, as I already said. And they weren't alone, whoever these wise men were. They were people of, of means. They had wealthy gifts to bring with them. So they traveled, and they traveled a great distance. So they probably brought a lot of servants and, and people with them. So there was quite an entourage that made this journey from somewhere in the east, westward, to Jerusalem. And this, this entourage enters this city and begins asking people, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Now, how are you feeling if you're the king of the Jews right now? Feeling a little bit threatened, feeling a little bit insecure, especially like Herod, if you were only half Jewish and really a, a fraudulent, had a fraudulent claim upon the throne. You were instilled there by the, the empire of Rome in 40 BC, right about 35 years before this time of the story. So you're feeling a little bit insecure. It'd be like walking into Baghdad in the 1980s with a group of people from you know, from a neighboring country and saying, where's he who's been born ruler of Iraq? And Saddam Hussein wouldn't be that thrilled about hearing uh, of this group that arrived in the city. That's kind of what Herod is experiencing. And so how does he respond? He responds, this is a threat. And it says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And not only he, the king over Israel right now, granted he was a puppet king, but nonetheless a king, and really a kind of um, a psycho king uh, who had murdered his own wives and his own children to protect his rule and power, as we read about in other sources. Um, he responds with being greatly troubled. And, and not only Herod the insider, but also all Jerusalem, we read here. The scribes and the chief priests that he gathers together, all are troubled with him. So why, why are they troubled? Why is Herod troubled? Why might we be troubled in responding to the one born king of the Jews, king over all the earth? Herod's an imposter in many ways. He's an imposter. He doesn't sit on the rightful throne. He knows that there are these promises throughout the Old Testament that one will come from David's lineage who will pick up the kingdom again, who will restore the, the, the glories of Israel and really the goodness to all creation. And he knows that this exists in the background. But we too, when we sit on our own little thrones over our own little lives in whatever kind of sphere of influence and power, perhaps the reason power corrupts is that it would corrupt us all if we had the ability to do what Herod could do or what other rulers could do. He knows and we know that life will not be the same if this one is allowed to have his way. Life will never be the same. The positions of privilege and power that Herod has himself enjoyed and the positions of privilege and power that the insiders in the Jewish nation at the time of Christ have enjoyed, they recognize will all come tumbling down if this one called Jesus grows up to have his rightful reign and rule. And in the same way, it's, it's like this for us that we have these lives that we build and these, these ideas that we have for our lives and we kind of want to live them in our own way, but we recognize that when Jesus, the rightful ruler and king over our own lives, the one who made us, comes to have his way, there's a sense in which things will never be the same. 
Our little lives and the way that we've built them are going to have to be literally turned upside down. Our selfish orientation, our orientation to kind of run and do things our own way is going to have to be put on its head and turned into a different direction. And life can never be the same when we encounter Jesus. So this one response we get in the text is this one of arrival. We see him as a rival. He's a rival to, our, to life on our own terms. And so we'd rather keep him like the baby in a manger with Savannah kind of carted around with us, our little leprechaun Jesus who could kind of sit on our shoulder and do as we tell him to do when we want him to do it. But he doesn't come that way. The Gospels don't present him that way. In this story here, we begin to see that he's presented through the Gospels as a, as a character of great conflict, of revealing, of dividing because of his, his significance over all of creation. On the other hand, we have the wise men from the East who represent in many ways the outsiders, the ones who don't have any claim upon what this God of Israel is going to do in the world. And who are they? Well, that's a good question that scholars love to debate and never figure out the real answer to. But my guess is they were probably pretty cool people, actually, because wise men were astrologers. They were students of sacred texts. They were magicians. They... um, they were engaged in, 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 in kind of interesting study and things. They were probably, I don't know what the modern day equivalent would be, but they probably weren't like Bono, but they were like something kind of cool like that. <laughs> um, and they came from the east. Why? What, what happened? They looked up in the sky. They studied the sky. Now, in the, in, in the ancient world, it was very common to see alterations in the night sky as having significance for what God was doing in the world. They studied the movement in the charts of the stars. They knew them very clearly. So something unusual happened in the sky. And that for them was an indication that that the divine was intervening in his world in some way. So they see this sign in the heavens and they go searching. Now I have to say, um, they're not like my daughter Savannah who this week said, Mommy, Mommy, look at the moon. And she goes, yeah, I see it. And she goes, somebody broke it in half. (laughs) Half moon. They they were a little bit more uh, uh, um, skilled in reading the sky than than a three-year-old was. But when the sky was interrupted, God was at work in the world. And so what does this sign in the heavens uh, tip off or uh, begin in their lives? It begins this journey where they start marching. Now, if they came, just say, let's say from Babylon, 800 miles away, they could travel about 20 miles a day. That's a 40-day journey for them. So guided, and hear hear the echoes here to our lives, guided by a divine light in the sky. They embark on a journey, a quest that is costly, that is arduous, that is uncertain, And they set out toward Jerusalem. And they seek this one born king of the Jews. And they seek him with a lot of energy, a lot of straining, a lot of striving, a lot of cost. And they seek him with a lot of joy. What does it say in verse 10? When they saw the star after leaving Herod, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They sought him with great joy. And they sought him. Why? Verse 2 and verse 11. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. And we have come to worship him. The first time that the word worship appears in the New Testament is here. 
repeats it again in verse 11. And they, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, it may be that this was just the proper kind of uh, homage that was due to a royal or div- uh, royal kingly figure, but it's quite likely that there are undertones here that are anticipating the kind of proper response to this one born king of the Jews that is then mirrored at the end of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28 when the disciples, after his resurrection, fell down like the Magi here and worshipped him. They're seeking following the divine light to worship with great joy. And the worship always leads to this costly giving, this giving. They open their treasures and they give to this baby king gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts fitting for a royal figure, gifts that were costly. And they bow to him as ruler. They don't resist him as rival. They bow to him as ruler. Now, before you're saying, well, I'm here in church and I believe in Jesus, so I've got it right. He's my ruler, not my rival. Let me just point out one of the themes I've hinted at already in this text. The outsider-insider theme that keeps coming back in the Gospels again and again and again. It's always the insiders in the Gospels that have difficulty seeing Jesus in his true light. So before you get too comfortable as an insider, perhaps, if you're here as one who follows Jesus, maybe just have that sense of of pause as you think about the fact that it's the insiders who are pushing him away. It's all Jerusalem and the king of the Jews, quote unquote, who are pushing him away, who are greatly troubled at the news of his birth. And this pushing away of Jesus from the insiders manifests itself most fully and grotesquely at the cross. It pushed him away. They have a claim upon God. Do we sometimes get that way where we've got a claim upon God? God, I've known you, I've served you, I've walked with you for a long time. You owe me something. They had a claim upon God. God owed them something. And they miss it. They miss the ruler. They see him as a rival and they push him away. On the other hand, it's the outsiders in the Gospels. Always the outsiders. It's these these, uh, eclectic, eccentric wise men from the East who are coming and following a star in the sky who somehow discern and learn the true nature of the king, the one born king of the Jews. It's always the outsiders, as it is here in this story, as it is in Luke 7 where the woman who who comes into the house of the Pharisee where Jesus is dining and breaks open this this jar of perfume and anoints him with it. This woman of the city, it says, this woman who was a sinner, this woman who was on the outcast, the outside. As it is in Luke 19 with the great little story of Zacchaeus was a wee little man who took the extra effort to climb up the tree and gave of himself and pushed hard to see and glimpse this one called Jesus and then who brought him into his home as it was with the blind men on the roadside as Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem, who cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And everybody in the crowd says, be quiet. They were blind. They probably were beggars. We don't know exactly, but they were certainly on the fringes. And Jesus heals them and they follow him. Whereas it is with the children 
in that day and age in Jesus' time seen more as a nuisance than as a blessing pushed to the side in Mark 10. And Jesus says, no, let the little children come. Or as it is at the end of Matthew's gospel, when the only one who gets it right is an outsider, a centurion who witnesses the death of Jesus on the cross and says, surely this was the son of God. Or perhaps even most powerfully and poignantly of all in that story that we all know from Luke 15. It's the brother who's been cast out, who himself has walked out, who has wasted his life and his inheritance, who has dishonored his father, who comes to see the true nature of his father. When it's the brother who always stayed at home, the brother who thought he knew it all all along, who misses the whole point of the nature of his father. It's the outsiders. The outsiders who see that they have no claim upon God and his greatness and his majesty and his glory who truly and genuinely come to see that Jesus is the ruler over their lives, the glorious one who's worthy of worship and worthy of praise. So as we celebrate on this uh, Sunday, we're celebrating Epiphany, the, the worldwide mission of this one born as a baby, as king of the Jews. We're reminded ever more in our lives the need for this mission of Jesus as ruler to be a reality in our own hearts. A reality deep down within us to penetrate our hearts fully. Have we become an insider? Have we become over-familiar? Have we begun to think that we have a claim upon God and missing His glory in the midst of it? Or do we continually recognize and see that we are outsiders to this family? We have no right to be here. And that this one who was born on Christmas morning is the rightful ruler over our lives. Not a leprechaun to do our wishes, but a Lord for us to do his bidding. Do we seek him like the Magi sought him? On arduous long journeys, following the divine light of the scriptures and of the spirit that he's given us within us. With joy, rejoicing in the gift that he is to us with worship, with hearts of worship and praise that pour out the valuable things of our lives. Maybe you've got some New Year's resolutions this year. Maybe you have some goals for 2010. Well, let me ask you this. Have you laid those at the feet of Jesus? Have you brought the things that you really value, your own life, your own direction, your own vision, and laid it down at the foot of your Lord? Have you brought your desire to kind of be somebody or to be known or to be be smart or to be creative and laid that down before him? Is he rival? Is he getting in the way of your dreams, your goals? Is Is he rival or is he ruler? Ruler who has open access to every part of your heart and your mind. Freedom to do as he wishes with you and with your life, whether in good times or in suffering. Is he ruler? The wonderful thing for us is on this side of the story of the the wise men that came from the east, unlike the wise men, though they had seen a great light, we have seen a greater light. We have seen the glory of Jesus crucified on our behalf. 
We've seen that the ruler who sits on the throne is also the lamb who was slain for us, who made a new way for us, a life for us. So we've seen a greater light and a greater love that we might come and worship him. Yes, absolutely, as you deal with this Jesus, your life will be undone. Your life will not be your own. But your choices are simply this. You can keep your life, scrape it together, make it what you want to make it, and and do your own thing and find yourself probably quite miserable in the end. Or you can lay it down. Open up your treasures. Lay them down. Give all and find that you have life abundant in Him. In Him, not in yourself, in Him. The one born King of the Jews. Amen.